Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. My name is Matthew Rode, your host for today's episode. Today we're joined by Chef Matthew Picard. How are you doing today, Matt? Oh, I'm doing well, Matthew. How about yourself? I'm doing really good. Excited to talk to you about your story. And sounds like we're going to be talking about a drunken Pig Mac. And I think that's got me pretty excited. So <laughs> to, to start things off, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your background and your story and what inspired you and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to tell that story a little bit. It'll be some Cliff Notes versions probably because it would take years and years to tell the whole thing, obviously. But uh, where I ended up today... So today I am Matt, the executive chef of Farmhouse. Um, it's our first concept. And how did we get here? Well, I started in 1998, about the same time in the summer. I remember it was going junior year to senior year. I was never really that great at school. Couldn't really find my niche. Loved playing music, loved art. My dad said, son, you're going to have to go get a job. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I applied to a restaurant. Uh and, you know, I asked my dad some questions for advice and things like that. And he said, well, son, why are you, why do you want to apply to a restaurant? Why do you want to try to work in a kitchen for your first job? Why don't you want to try retail or why don't you try an auto place or anything like that? And I said, we were saying, dad, I know no matter where I go, no matter what town I move to after this or wherever I might be doing that, no matter what, there's going to be a restaurant. And if I learn how to cook now, I'm going to have a job. People are always going to have to eat. <laughs> And my eyes on the prize at that age was, you know, I thought I was just going to be a famous musician or something. So I was just cooking just to cook and to hold a job. But it, it ends up getting much deeper than that. And I immediately at a young age fell in love with it. I thought it was super awesome. I showed up. I got to work with cooler, older kids that listen to punk rock and heavy metal. And, you know, you could have a cigarette break on your break or they'll feed you and, uh, <laughs> you know, send you home with a meal. And then, you know maybe get you a beer after work. So I couldn't believe honestly that I got paid for that. Um, <laughs> and I fell in love of, with the camaraderie in the kitchen and I had a natural uh, knack for cooking just from growing up and taking care of a couple younger brothers and um, family always loved to cook. That was our big hangout time. So I was just always kind of in a kitchen. So it makes sense that I liked it. Um, do you remember your first, do you remember the first uh, meal that you cooked? My first home cooked meal that I cooked? No, no, at the restaurant when you got that job. Oh my goodness. So that's a really funny thing because I was assigned the task. Now this is 98, like I said. So my started at 550 an hour. I was hired as a plate loader. And <laughs> what that meant to me was I either <laughs> I either put on a sweet potato, baked potato, rice, or fries on the plate. 
turn around, line it up for all the servers, which we all know is called expediter now in restaurants. At the time, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is cool. So I would get to talk to the cooks, load, load their plates for them, set things up, watch them grill it and fry it. And all that. It, was a, it was a major steakhouse at the time with tons of cuts of steak. So it was super fascinating. But then I got to be the guy to turn around and then sell it to the servers. So I got to be social and things like that. So I don't necessarily remember the exact thing I cooked, but at a very young age, remember learning those fryers almost immediately. That's what they want to move you to first. Then they found out I was good at that and then salads. Then once I was 19, they threw me in front of the the big hood range with the, uh, all the different cuts of steaks and meats and things like that. Uh, so I can't isolate like an exact dish because I, yeah. it was 25 years ago at this point in time. Um, but yeah, at a young age, I definitely decided, okay, if I'm going to work a job, this is going to be it for me. Um, the passion, I don't think for actually like cooking itself, like knowing that, I wanted to create menus and wanted to, um, you know, teach people and do things didn't happen probably until my mid to late twenties. Um, and that was once I finally got the opportunity to work in more of an upscale dining restaurant. Um, and I do remember one of those first dishes that I made from scratch and it was a shiitake mushroom relish that was going to go on top of a, a sashimi dish. Ooh. And I, I was working under a chef, um, his name's Keith Rhodes. He's out of Wilmington and Wilmington, North Carolina. And I remembered the difference between this kitchen versus the kitchens I'd worked my way up from. So I'd started off by working what you would call maybe corporate restaurants, definitely high volume and stuff like that. Now this was the first little small privately owned upscale dining. You're working with four or five other guys. And I got pulled in to wash pots and pans and mop floors and I would do anything and then got moved to cold side and then started to learn cold side and then work my way through there. But it was that kitchen that really, really made me say, wow, this is awesome. This is where you can make really, really great food from scratch, learn flavors and all that stuff. And that was kind of the turning point. Then that's where I started to seek out working um, at more privately owned restaurants and for private owners that wanted to focus on, um, particular, um, concepts, so to speak. So I'd say that occurred in my mid to late twenties. Okay. And there's a lot worse places to learn how to be a chef than Wilmington. (laughs) It was, it was a great place, a good opportunity to work. I, I did go to Cape Fear community college for a touch um, in the culinary program. And then just honestly worked my way all through the industry, my whole entire way. So the hands-on experience and working with, with chefs that are willing to put the time and energy to you. That's, that's also something that was super awesome to me. And, uh, I kind of wanted to give that back later on in life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So before we get to talking about the farmhouse concept, um, I'd love it if you could Talk a little bit about what were some of the bigger challenges that you faced as you were refining your skills as a chef. And uh, let's think pre-COVID. And then I actually want to jump into post-COVID and talk about how things have changed there. But what were some of the things early on that you felt like you were a natural that you that you just had a knack for? And then what were some of the more difficult things that you had to figure out? I would say the naturalness was the 
always the ability to be a leader in a kitchen uh, and more in a positive way. And, and not just meaning take charge, but I was always a yes man. Um, if somebody asked me to do something, it was yes, sir, right on top of it. Um, my communication was always a key factor too. I was very calm and polite. Um, so I think that those were my natural abilities, cooking skills, learning along the way. I had common sense and was able to see something once and remember it. Yeah. Um, so that was super helpful. Uh, I think that the hardest part of being a chef personally is the, the managing of people in an aspect. Um, once you're a chef, it doesn't matter if you have all the great recipes in the world, if nobody knows how to make them. So you have to be a nice mentor and a teacher, but at the same time, you're managing people as in different people have different personalities. Um, so I found that overall, the most challenging thing to do was to manage the individual on an individual basis, uh, holding people to standards, similar standards of operations, right? Yeah. But e- to get what you need as a chef out of each person, um, you have to learn how to manage that person differently, how to teach that person differently, how to get the results that you need, which is that perfect dish to come from someone else. That's not your hands. Um, and a lot of that is attitude and how you teach them and, and work with them. So that was a challenging thing. And it takes many, many years and took lots of maturity on my end, um, to reach that but that is something that I hold with me now and I have for several years in the past few kitchens. Um, but that was a big learning point. And I'll remember the person that asked me when she was promoting me from a, a, a line cook to a sous chef she said, can you manage people? I didn't know what that question meant at that point in time, <laughs> but I looked her dead in the eyes and said, yes, I, th- I think I can. <laughs> and you know, I, the part of me was like, yeah, sure. Can I, do I know the procedures? Can I tell people what to do? Can I do this? But what I didn't know was, was how broad that statement was and what I didn't know yet, but what, what I know now. So can you lead people? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been fascinated with uh, the world that you're in because it is incredibly creative, right? You can innovate and create probably millions of different combinations that can impress and and delight a consumer. But at the same time, you have to be incredibly process-driven, rigid, and consistent. Like you have all your creatives in the food space, but at the same time, you don't want your customer coming and showing up and ordering the same thing and feeling like it's different every time. Correct. And so there's there's an incredible balance that's needed there, right? For, absolutely. And, and I would say, you know, just to jump back into earlier, some of those um, in my younger years, those corporate restaurants, so to speak, larger corporate restaurants that came in with such a big structure, preached it for consistency. So I think that bled over in a real positive way. Once I joined into, um, you know, more personal mom and pop restaurants, so to speak. Um, and it's a super good trait because, yeah, I mean, consistency is everything (laughs) in a dish, you know, most definitely don't want to show up on a Tuesday and have the best burger you ever had in your life. And then Thursday, you know, old old Johnny, what's his name on the grill that had a rough day and he doesn't care anymore. (laughs) So, you know, it's, sometimes you got to pump your employees up when they come to the door too, because bad moods, bad moods make bad food. So you got to keep them, keep them happy. Yeah. 
I love that. Bad foods make bad food. <laughs> it does, man. <laughs> it does. You're not going to cook good food if you are in a bad mood. Trust me. I've seen it. So can you tell us a little bit about the timeline with farmhouse and COVID and how, how, how did COVID impact the restaurant industry and, and where were you in your journey with farmhouse? Okay. So, um, me and some of my other partners come from another small restaurant group that started, um, about 15 years ago that has now kind of dwindled down and we're now branching off into farmhouse. So the partners I'm with now, we actually were, um, we have another restaurant in Charlotte as well, uh, called Blackfin. So I was the executive chef at the Ballantyne location, which is near Indian land, the farmhouse location. Um, and we were already in the works of wanting to create this farmhouse concept. We wanted to be a beer garden. We kind of found the spot. It looked like a farmhouse already. So me and my partners started developing the menu for that. Got floored by COVID in the sense that I had never thought I would ever see something like this happen to the restaurant industry, but I was fortunate enough to hold my job there. So that kind of got put on hold at farmhouse only for the sake of you can't open during COVID. What are we going to do? The workers that we're already building started to drop off. Uh, and then we had this new mission to, you know, hold on to Blackfin and make sure that we did everything right. Keep the deco business coming in and stuff like that. So while we were staying open with minimal staff, just mainly salary managers and, um, everybody else had to go home. Uh, we, continued to put out the to-go orders and at the same time continue to really polish and work on that menu for farmhouse. Um, North Carolina regulations, I, I believe were still really tight in that June. And then we were able to try to get farmhouse launched and open by August or September. So we opened our official opening was in October. South Carolina had no limit or regulations. North Carolina was still super limited spacing in their seating, all that stuff. So when we opened in South Carolina, I mean, we pretty much just got crushed off the rip because we're on the state line. So everybody that couldn't go out to restaurants anymore in North Carolina, were all coming out uh, to us in South Carolina, <laughs> which is sounds awesome, right? Well, I didn't have a staff. <laughs> so there was probably like, we're, we're hiring on the fly. We're trying to figure out who's got a job. Who doesn't. Nobody wants to come back to work because all the cooks are still getting paid um, on employment for the most part. So it was really hard to try to pull a staff in and get this restaurant off the ground and then get crushed at the same time, which we were not expecting. We really weren't. Um, so the challenging parts lied mostly with staffing and trying to get up and rolling and stuff. Um, but I mean, we made it through it the best we could. So can you talk a little bit about the farmhouse concept and what makes you unique from many other restaurants? So we decided to go back to a really old school, um, form of sausage making and grinding. Okay. Lots of people, lots of people focus on, um, you know, barbecue and smoke houses and smoking things. So we wanted to do something a little bit different. So we wanted to go back to sausage making. Um, it's been around forever. It's super cool. In lots of different European countries, there's different sausages for different regions and things like that. And the, 
the able to play with sausage and grinds and add your own flavors to things is really awesome. Um, so it all started with wanting to be a beer garden. What goes hand in hand with that bratwurst. Um, so that's kind of where it took off and got started. Uh, from there, then we got into developing the tiny sausages, um, sweet ones, hot ones, uh, a few other flavor profiles that are off the cusp, like a bacon jalapeno cheddar. Oh, it sounds um, so good. That one's super crowd pleaser. It's probably one of our most popular, uh, biggest sellers too. Um, and anyway, I'm getting into numerous amounts of chicken sausages and stuff like that, but we stuck to focus on the grind. Nobody else was really focusing on just sausages. Um, and we also, since we were grinding, wanted to do fresh burgers because fresh burgers are super good. Um, and so that's kind of where the concept got built and developed and the process of making a sausage is a labor of love itself because you break down the pig first, the part, whatever you choose you're using. Uh, in our case, we're going from the shoulder to down to the hawk. Um, so you have that aspect of it. And then when you go to do the grind is what they call it. That's when the magic happens. So that's when you take your, your pig that's all cut down and nice and ready for the machine. And you add your fresh basil and your garlic, your fresh oregano, your toasted fennel, an array of spices. I'm actually talking through an Italian right now. And then you, you mix all that together and it's just all these fresh herbs and aromatics and it just smells so good. And then you start your grinding process. Um, you, with, from there, you know, it gets ground twice and then we move it over to a mixer and then a second phase comes in. There's an emulsifier that helps bind the sausage. It's normally a liquid of sorts. Like with a bratwurst, it's cream and egg. It's traditional. With an Italian sausage, I like to use white wine. So from there, it goes into the mixing stage. After the mixing stage, it goes into the piping machine. It starts the, the coiling stage, and then it gets linked. So every day, our sausage makers are in there going through this, this amazing old-school practice and process that's as old as um, you know, Roman days and stuff. And it's just really neat to see something like that come back in the scene uh, and to watch the whole process and then to experiment and make your own weird ones and stuff from time to time too. So, yeah. And like with sausage making, isn't the amount of fat you use super important as well? It is. So we do 70, 30. Okay. Uh, and to jump back to the breaking down of, of the hog itself, that's where you separate out your fat ratio. Now, mostly when you're dealing with that part, <clears throat> the ratio itself in the lean meat already has a good amount of fat marble in it. You'll separate out the fat cap that comes off of it into a separate pile. And then when you weigh your batches out, that's how you get your formula for your lean to fat ratio. Um, okay. Yep. So it's, let's say for a 25 pound batch, we're looking at about 18 pounds of lean to seven pounds of fat. Um, if we want to sub in fats, that's a different story too. So like for our chicken sausage, we actually end up adding a fat into our chicken thighs, uh, which is butter. Huh. So that plays in the ratio as well. And that all that has to do with the, is the lovely texture and the savoriness of that sausage when you bite into it and the texture. Do you guys do ground pork at all, like pork burgers or anything like that? Uh, so when we do anything not linked, uh, just as a grind, some of the things we do is a ground chorizo. 
which we do a chorizo mac and cheese with, which is pretty cool. That sounds um, sometimes when we run patties, we have a ginger wasabi that we'll do in a link, but when we have extra grind, we'll actually press that on the flat top into a patty and do a really cool banh mi sandwich uh, with that, which people like. We run specials every day, so it gives us the freedom to like use uh, some leftover grinds that's not getting linked in easier ways. Uh, so yes, we will run like pork burgers as smash burgers. Uh, I've done like a double um, smash burger, but it's been a spicy pork brat with sauerkraut and melted Swiss and Dijon and people eat it up. They love the specials. They'll go for them every time. That's really cool. When you, when you think about the journey uh, of starting that, what are some of the crazier stories? I know, I know you have this drunken pig Mac. Can we start there? So yes, the drunken (laughs) pig Mac is, is what became uh, the name of a dish and the name of this dish. uh, I had to have a name for the dish, but anyway, we'll get to that point. So basically me and a partner of mine had participated in a local contest that was for a fundraiser for um, (laughs) feeding, feeding the homeless. Um, so we volunteer our services and we basically get put on it's, it was a really fun experience. So it was hosted local here. And the deal was if it was, if we made it past this round, then we advance to the next round, which, okay. So if we advance in Charlotte, we make it to the Chicago round. Oh, so we're super, Oh yeah. We're super excited. So me and a partner chef of mine, we went into this and it's like a chopped, we were only allowed to choose a protein beforehand and bring two secret ingredients, maybe three. Uh, and then the rest, we had to like raid a table when they blew a whistle to go get the rest of the things we need. Huh. Um, so it started there. We'll skip this story because it's super long. We won that. It was awesome. We made some killer steak tacos. Um, we got the people's choice. We cooked for like 250 people that day. It was super, super good time. A uh, big victory and a blast to do something because it was all timed. It was like chopped. You had to like an hour to do this. And that'd be so super- cool. It was a blast. So we had the ability to advance. Um, you know, so we were like, okay, great. We're going to go to, we're going to go to Charlotte and, or we're going to go to Chicago, excuse me. And this time it's bring your best bite is what they said. Okay, cool. Best bite. Meaning to me, you take one bite and you're like in that. Mm, okay. That's really, really, really good. <laughs> so the drunken pig Mac is the dish that we had landed on. It did not have a name before that. Uh, but we had did a beer braised pork, uh, beer braised pulled pork, heavy in beer, um, a bourbon barbecue sauce that would drizzle over on top and a smoked Gouda mac and cheese. So it was basically a barbecue mac and cheese, just super hyped up. And this was going to be our best bite. This is what we're going to take with us. This is what we're going to do. We get there. If we get, when we get there and people taste it, surely we'll make it to the second round. The second round would be another contest where we get to cook for everybody on site. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause the, the rules were the rules where you could show up with your dish already prepared, no cooking on site whatsoever. So how are we going to do that? We're in Charlotte. We're going to Chicago. Do we want to drive? Do we want to fly? Dude, we get this crazy idea that we're, we're going to fly. And then we're like, well, what are you going to do? Commissary kitchen hours. We can't like go up there and spend just like all day in a commissary kitchen and everything like that. We got to think this out, like where we're going to stay, where we're going to travel. So our plan was we are going to make our pork 
and we're going to make our mac and cheese sauce or smoked gouda mac and cheese sauce. And we did that in our kitchen in Charlotte and cooled it properly and then chose to put it in freezer bags and shingle it out and freeze these flat frozen packs of pork and mac and cheese sauce. We'd already factored in. We weren't going to be able to fit all the noodles. <laughs> Here's the thing that the, the, I skipped this, but the suitcase, you can only have so much per pound in your bag that you're checking. We read all the regulations. So we're having to preload these bags and practice. We also had to bring our own utensils, right? So one was going to have the food and one was going to have all the utensils. So the food we packed in dry ice, frozen and shingled, wrapped in, um, <laughs> wrapped in a cold pack wrapper, into one suitcase. That's one of our check bags. I remember weighing it on like the scale we do inventory with at the restaurant and being like, okay, we should pass. This should pass. I think we'll be all right. They'll be able to check it. And then the other one had what we we're going to have to use on site to hold our food hot to give everyone these taste tests. So that was like crock pot, tabletop skillet, any other utensils, knives, tongs, and things like that. So one of us had that. And then we just had our chef coat, clothes, and a backpack. So we do make it through the airport. The food does fly to Chicago. We do take a train from the airport to our oh, hotel no. hotel in Chicago. We And we temperature check as soon as we get there. Man, it's frozen solid. We're like, ah, first of all, nothing pops. Nothing did anything. Everything's frozen solid. We couldn't have nailed it or done a better job with that. <laughs> Never even thinking something like this would be possible. But anyway... <laughs> So we get to the hotel and we'd already pre-thought to ourselves, all right, well, we know we're going to have a fridge in the hotel and we know we've packed these things thin and frozen and awesome. That way also too, you could slack them out. So it just so happened in the hotel, we were able to take out a couple racks and slot in everything into that tiny hotel fridge. And <laughs> from there, we had a really good time in Chicago that night. We went and got some, uh, a true deep dish and had a couple beers and we're getting ready for the next day. Did they, hey, did uh, they have you try Malort when you were there? No. Uh-uh. What is Malort? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible drink. It's terrible, no. but it's like a rite of passage. When you go to Chicago, usually the bartender will say like, have you been here? And if you say no, he'll like, all right, here's, here's some Malort. <laughs> oh, I feel like I missed out. I need to ask next time. Even though you, you missed out, terrible. but you did and all at the same time. <laughs> So we, the, so the next part is, okay, we rented some commissary hours for the next day before the, the show. And, um, we had slacked out the food in the fridge, repacked it, hopped in an Uber, went all the way across town, across Chicago, which is beautiful, by the way, that was really cool. Uh, and then used the commissary kitchen to, boil off all of our noodles, reheat all of our sauce, get our pork going, get it all good and hot again, and then reuse the same hot bags that we used for cold bags before and transport this. This is all in two suitcases. I'm like not talking hot boxes that we took with us. These are like travel on, pull with a handle behind you <laughs> suitcases. <laughs> um, so here we are rolling up. We got all of our food prepared. It's all super hot. We're showing up to the event with two suitcases, crock pot, and, you know, a flat top skillet and set up on a table. And there it was, there was my face, Matt Picard, drunken pig Mac. And here we go. And, uh, we 
we did not win the best bite that day. But there were also people cooking on their stations. I'll tell you that. And we did not have to cook on our stations that day. But I thought that was a pretty crazy food story. And if you didn't know it was possible to fly with food to another place and prepare it, it is. Um, Yeah, it sounds like a heck of a journey. It certainly was. And to top it all off, Bo Jackson was one of the judges judges there that day. It turned out that was my the chef that was with me, he's like, Oh, it's Bo Jackson. It's like my, it's like my childhood idol, man. I was like, yeah, it's awesome. You should get a picture. And they want to do a picture with him. I mean, he was bummed. And, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, we, we didn't make it. So the, it, we did not make it. The experience was super awesome. The drunken pig Mac was awesome. It was so nice to see people try our dish. We got to try other people's dishes, connect with a lot of chefs while we were up there. It was a charity event. So it was a lot of fun. And the next night we got invited back out to watch the grand finale, which was so cool. Um, and just, you know, drank some beers, enjoyed a lot of good dishes for people, met some cool people and, uh, had a good time in Chicago, man. It was, it was a really, really good time. I would, I would do it again, but I don't think I would ever fly with food through an airport and suitcases and stuff. No, like I, that. I think I'd drive the 20 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next time, maybe rent some more commissary hours or something. But, uh, well, that's awesome. Now, to piggyback on the drunken pig Mac, what is your perspective on pork dishes and, and where that is going? Have you seen people increase or decrease their desire to go to a restaurant and eat pork? I'll be completely honest with you. I think the pig is on the rise. Um, and here's why I think with the culinary trends, these days, people are sinking back into authenticity, meaning in the Spanish culture, Asian culture, uh, and even what culture we bring from Europe, uh, and so on and so forth. It's it's gotten away from these massive hybrid restaurants that just do like crazy things and put a ton of ingredients on on things and and stuff like that. Yeah, P- people are craving those authentic Spanish joints, and pig is huge on their menu. If you look at it and like one of my favorite things to get is always going to be the al pastor and it's, it's absolutely delicious. Um, and then if you look in the Asian community, the dumplings, pork dumplings are huge. And it's like people that perfect their craft. Uh, we have a wonderful lady here in town. The dumpling lady is just outstanding. Um, and so I think when you get to back to now, the new trend in, in dining in general, um, being those isolated focuses and being those like just back to the basics and the authenticity of their, um, you know, culture. I think that you just see more of pig, more pig, to be honest with you. And that's restaurant culture right now. Uh, what about home life? What do you think it's going to take to get more people to buy more pork? Man, I didn't realize it was a problem. <laughs> I feel like I'm surrounded by it. Fair. No, Where you're I, at, you I, probably I, are. I, I am. That's why I was joking. Because North North and South Carolina, it's it's everywhere. everywhere. Everywhere you go, it is. So, but yeah, that's that's just me being funny. What cooking tips might you have around pork, and and what cuts do you encourage consumers to go out and try more of? What do you think right now is underappreciated? or just probably cooked wrong? Hmm. 
That's a really good question. I actually maybe overlooked the pork chop these days. Maybe yeah. overlooked. Yeah. Um, they always seem to be the ones that are the pork chops always seem to be the thing that's least likely to be expensive and ran on sale most often. I don't know if people have just gotten away from the old fashioned pork chop and have moved their way to tenderloins. And I know smoking's so popular down here these days that a lot of people barbecue and just smoke everything. Um, I think, you know, as a good tip and a good bit of advice, like if you're not a big smoker like me, my brother is, he likes to smoke everything. Uh, but there's ways to, to braise pork in the oven that are so tender and so juicy. Um, I personally like to do my ribs in the oven first. Um, I will rub them down and score the back, but I will do them submerged in a liquid most often. Hmm. Uh, yep. Um, they will be almost all the way up to all you see is the tips of the bones. I'll braise them in the oven for, uh, depending on how much I'm doing, a uh, couple hours slow and then pull them out, let them cool and then throw them on the grill, brush them up with barbecue sauce. And they are, fall off the bone tender cook perfectly i didn't have to wait all day uh, <laughs> it doesn't have an overly smoky flavor um but that's just a personal preference i think that's maybe overlooked a lot of times especially in the region i'm at is everyone thinks you gotta smoke everything uh but you don't no even like a pork butt pork shoulder in a crock pot you do that well yep it can taste really 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 good we do it often because we don't actually have the smoking capabilities. We don't smoke at our restaurant at all. And so when we do pull pork, that's how we do it. Well, not a crock pot, but in the oven, submerged, same, same kind of, same kind of thing. What do you see for the future of the pork industry from your perspective? Do you, do you have any, any thoughts on, on where you see pork going outside of uh, what you said on the restaurant business? probably driving an increase in demand because of the, I guess the cultural back to the roots kind of mindset you talked about. Yes. And I think too, just with other options, I mean, it's just so weird because now to me meats all on the same playing field at this point in time, it used to be, you know, chicken wasn't as expensive as beef and pig wasn't as expensive as beef and blah, 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 blah. And now everything has gotten to the point where, it's all relatively the, the same when it comes down to it. And the, the consumer sees. You think, think that, people are shopping primarily on flavor and preference and not on price. That's what I'm trying to say. You put, yeah. that's very well put. Yes. I think now it's the, because everything's kind of the same playing field price wise, people have been more apt to try something new or, or things like that. So, whereas they may have only went for the chicken before. Her. Gotcha. Now, before we wrap up, I have a few questions for you. They're kind of rapid fire in nature. But if you don't have an answer, you can go ahead and say pass. What is the university that you cheer for? Oh, <laughs> Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech. What is your go-to light beer? Oh, that's Miller Lite, baby. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to sing karaoke, what song are you singing? Oh, I'm terrified of karaoke. Good God. Uh, geez, <laughs> Louise. Eh, I have no idea, but hopefully it's something by like Chris Stapleton or something. I don't know. <laughs> so so that, that's one of your fears is somebody throws you up on stage and says, all right, here you go. Here's a song. 
it's happened by my wife and I left her on stage and she was so mad. <laughs> it was man in the mirror by Michael Jackson. And I froze. She goes, you know, this song, I did nothing. I was so petrified, but yes, I, I left her up there. And then two other girls came and took my microphone from me and sang with her. But yeah. Ne- no. ne- never goes well forcing someone to come up on stage to sing karaoke. Uh, it is oh always going to be a, a bombshell. Yeah, so I'm even nervous talking about it right now. I've still never done it. I, I can't. <laughs> I just I can't hardly watch it. I get so embarrassed. It's weird. What is a bucket list travel destination? Oh man, uh, Italy for sure. Why Italy? I would love to go take cooking lessons over there just for fun almost pretend like I didn't know how to do anything at all. Just listen. My mom did it um, a few years uh, back and she said it was just the most incredible experience. They're so nice, so kind. Uh, The food is absolutely outstanding. Everything's so fresh. And that's ever since she told me that her experience, I'm like, that's definitely something I would love to do. What is your favorite cut of meat? Hmm. Wow. I do love a good ribeye. That's so biased. How can you even say that? Because they're different. Yeah. <laughs> you want to say, go by each one? All right. For you a cow, feel like, you, like, you, the feel like you have to pick a favorite yeah. child or something right now. Yeah. For a cow, I like the ribeye. For uh, the pig, I think the uh, the decadent belly is where I go. For one bite is just like super, super good. We cure our own belly in house and do it there. Uh, for chicken, man, I like chicken wings and thighs. I'm a dark meat man. Have you ever had pig wings? Oh, yeah. I have had pig wings before. That was a thing. Uh, Yeah. So I remember kind of when they first came out and uh, I wanted them to kind of catch on board. I remember where I was working, I'd run them for a special. Uh, They were super delicious, but they kind of went somewhere for a while. But I remember all the vendors were coming by with samples. I got to try these, got to try these. That was about 10 years ago. But yeah, they're good. I need to look into that again, run that as a special. Yeah, they're good. They're a little pricier. I went and got a bunch of them online. I think it was like 11 some a pound. Yeah. Um, which it's pricier, but it's not the end of the world. And there's a lot of meat on there. There's so oh, much, yeah. Oh, there's so much you can do with them. There's just I feel like it takes a chicken wing and that adds a whole nother layer of potential from what you can definitely. do with chicken. Most definitely. And last question here for the rapid fire is what do you do for fun in the summer? Oh, fun in the summer, man. I got a whole bunch of kids. We love the beach. We got a great wife. We are outside family. I do some gardening. I have uh, six raised beds and lots of produce out there that we like to pick together. But we're just an active family. We like to be outside, uh, swimming pools, bike riding, stuff like that. Kids what, are always busy with camp. What's your go-to beach in that oh, area? Okay. Love Holden Beach. Holden Beach is awesome. Uh, I actually grew up in Atlantic Beach, North Carolina. That's most my every summer. One. No I kidding. love Atlantic Beach. Are you serious? I love that it. Is... Go there every year. Dude, that's amazing. So my family's had a timeshare there since 1985. And it's at a place at the beach, Atlantic Beach there. Oh, that's killer. Yeah, it's so peaceful and quiet. We love it. It is. It is. It's, it's great. Do you ever go over to uh, Beaufort while you're over there? Uh, not a ton. Um, it kind of just depends on, on the trip. If you're ever down there across from Buford, there's Shackleford Island, and you can go uh, look at and hang out with wild horses while you're at the beach. Oh, interesting. I might have to take my wife to do that next time. She would love it. So my last question for you would be, what is a golden nugget 
a bit of life wisdom that you picked up along the way that you would like to share with listeners? The way to learn is to listen. That's a good one. I think so. <laughs> it's hard to do sometimes. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being a guest on the popular pig podcast and sharing your story and, and providing some tips and insights. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on today. I had a lot of fun. It was a nice conversation and uh, I really appreciate you having me, Matt. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.